Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. At length, the air began to grow grey with light. Then swift golden arrows came flashing across the snow, and at last the glorious sun peeped up above the lava wall and looked in upon our half-frozen forms and upon Ventvergel, sitting there amongst us, stone dead. No wonder his back had felt cold, poor fellow. He had died when I heard him sigh and was now almost frozen stiff, Shocked beyond measure, we dragged ourselves from the corpse, strange the horror we all have of the companionship of a dead body, and left it still sitting there, with its arms clasped round its knees. By this time the sunlight was pouring its cold rays, for here they were cold, straight in at the mouth of the cave. Suddenly I heard an exclamation of fear from someone, and turned my head down the cave. And this was what I saw. Sitting at the end of it, for it was not more than twenty feet long, was another form, of which the head rested on the chest and the long arms hung down. I stared at it, and saw that it too was a dead man, and what was more, a white man. So that, uh, Dominic, is a thrilling moment from King Solomon's Mines, which was published in 1885, written by Henry Ryder Haggard. And Basically, even if you've never read it, you will be familiar with it because it was one of the best-selling novels of the Victorian age, continues to sell in bucket loads, massively, massively influential on everything from Tolkien to computer games. And I'm very familiar with your methods. You are a firm <laughs> believer, are you not, Dominic, that it's yes. the kind of it's the mass market kind of middle brow literature yeah. that is a much better guide to the spirit of an age than, say, the great literary classics. I think that's, yeah, absolutely, Tom. King Solomon's Mines is not just 
uh, an enormously influential kind of text of empire, of the British Empire and of Britain's involvement in Africa. But I would argue it's a foundational text of, of modern popular culture, actually. Yeah. So, I mean, Indiana Jones films, countless video games. If you've ever played Tomb Raider or Uncharted, if your children have played those games, they're playing versions of King Solomon's Mines. It's enormously important. So can you just give a very quick outline of the plot? We'll, we'll kind of look at the details in more later, but just yeah. kind of, because it's basically, it's a quest plot, isn't it? Set in Africa. It is, exactly. So King Solomon's Mines is set in late 19th century Africa. Um, our hero is Alan Quatermain. We'll, we'll go on to talk about him. He's a, he's a hunter. He's an explorer. He's an adventurer. And he teams up he, with, a, with a sort of little fellowship, Tom, I think yes. it's fair to say. Yeah. Yeah. And they set off um, over this extraordinary, fantastical landscape. So incredibly parched desert, isn't it? Exactly. And they arrive at this mountain, and that's where the, 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 the scene of the cave with the frozen white man. Exactly so. Exactly. They are heading into the blank spaces of the map. Again, something we'll come back to um, a little bit later. And they're in search of King Solomon's treasure mines. They believe that there's treasure there. There are also two other quests that are kind of overlapping quests, as in other more familiar, more modern quest stories. One of them is looking for his brother, who has gone missing. And one of their party, Tom, is in disguise, isn't he? He, he, is. he may or may not be the lost king of a lost kingdom. Yes. So this is very exciting. They they go on all these adventures. They they find this this lost kingdom, terribly um, wicked and formidable supervillain who is the king of it, who they fight, and an incredibly sinister witch, isn't there? Gagool, who is we I'm sure be talking about. Yes, absolutely. They discover the mines. Um, they discover the caves, but of course they go down into the caves and they're trapped. And there's all kinds of uh, sort of terrors and threats down in the caves. And would you believe it? They emerge triumphant at the end of the story i don't think i'm giving away the end no, by saying not too big a spoiler there that, no, that the heroes live to fight another day dominic just one thing one thing that really struck me when i reread it i read it as a child hadn't read it since it has the primal scene of white explorers coming to a distant land and impressing the natives with their knowledge of eclipses yes so i i kind of you know that is such a familiar trope it appears in so many kind of adventure stories and i um I, I checked and this is the first time it's used apparently so that's a kind of gives an indication of of how many it's a massive cliche breeder yes it is <laughs> and in fact say. almost every chapter when you read king solomon's minds now so i reread it as you did for this having originally read it as a child and thought well it was brilliant as a child and um when you read it now almost every chapter seems stock full of stereotypes and cliches but often that's because it's the first time yeah. they were. Yeah. So it's all the scenes of them going into the mines and the caves and they discover dead bodies, which everybody has seen if they've ever seen a Hollywood movie. Yeah. It's King Solomon's Mines that creates that. Uh, although having said that, of course, there are a lot of um, cliches that are bred of the imperial age yes. that are liable to seem offensive now. Yeah. So we'll probably come to that as well. Anyway, so Ryder Haggard, yeah. who is he? Right. So, so we're a history podcast, not a lit crit podcast. So let's root King Solomon's Mines in history. So Henry Ryder Haggard is a classic kind of child of empire, somebody who goes out to seek his fortune in empire. So he's the eighth of 10 children born to, what's his name? William Haggard. Who claimed dis descent from a Danish nobleman, I read. That's right. Yeah. A squire, they were, they're a family of kind of squires in Norfolk. And, and what's quite interesting about Haggard is Haggard, not unlike his greatest fan, who's J.R.R. Tolkien, 
So you probably spotted many of the listeners the uh, similarities with the Lord of the Rings in the in the story. So Tolkien was a massive fan of Haggard. Haggard, like Tolkien, from the very beginning has a sense of kind of loss and nostalgia, and he's backward looking because his family are one of those families who owned a lot of land in kind of rural England, and with thanks to free trade and the the import of kind of cheap foreign food and stuff, they their world is embattled and their world is kind of in decline. Well, so Dominic, did you did you read the Brandon Hall, which was the setting of the Go Between Hartley's great novel that that um, that was based on Ryder Haggard's childhood home? Do you know, I didn't know that at all. What a brilliant! Uh, uh, that's a, well, the Go Between is one of my favourite books. Well, there you go. It all connects. Very good. So anyway, they're sort of being squeezed now. Ryder Haggard's older brothers have gone to public schools and to Oxford or Cambridge. He was sent to Ipswich Grammar School. He was seen as less bright than his brothers. But in fact, his father was extremely rude to him and said he was a complete failure and you're destined to be a greengrocer. Yes, harsh, harsh words. Like Margaret Thatcher's father, Tom, Mm. (laughs) who was a greengrocer. Anyway, obviously, William Haggard, who was a barrister, was completely wrong about this. But but his childhood, I mean, you can see is a breeding ground for a lot that's going to appear uh, later in his novel. So he's, um, as a child, he was very kind of keen on hunting, shooting, fishing, all that kind of stuff, which will reappear. Here. And he had um, he had a very sinister rag doll, didn't he? He did, called She Who Must Be Obeyed, <laughs> and yeah. and his nurse used this this doll to kind of menace him into obedience. So that's all part of the mix. It is very much part of the mix. She Who Must Be Obeyed will definitely reappear in this story. So anyway, in eighteen seventy five, uh, he's nineteen years old. Ryder Haggard and his father discovers that a, a family friend who lives nearby, who's called Sir Henry Bulwer, is going off to South Africa to become the lieutenant governor of natal and he writes to him and says i've got this absolutely useless son because he'd failed all his exams hadn't he he'd kind of failed military exams he'd failed his he never took his foreign office exams i mean right yeah i think people sort of now say his father was actually quite harsh a bit like churchill's father right and he's not i mean clearly he's not that stupid because he writes two of the best-selling books ever written but um anyway it's all arranged he will go out to south africa and he'll basically be a dog's body for the lieutenant governor of Natal, he will do things like organise big banquets and talk to the servants, and which is actually what he does. So he goes out there and he does this. He spends his spare time out there on the veldt, hunting and you know riding around and whatever. I'm kind of basically falling in love with Africa and falling in love with the idea that here there is a sense of grandeur and adventure that you don't get in Norfolk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And and he particularly becomes an admirer of the Zulus, doesn't he? And he, he does. sees in the Zulus a kind of. Uh, a warrior class reminiscent of the ancient Spartans. I think that's absolutely right, Tom. It's a, yeah, it's a very good comparison. I think that's exactly how he sees the Zulus. So at this point, the British who are, who are there in South Africa, they are pushing ever further into the sort of to, north towards the heart of the continent, taking more lands. They're drawn eventually by diamonds and by gold. But of course, they're in conflict with not merely the, the Africans who are there, so like the Zulus, but another group of settlers who are the Boers. And who were there first? Yeah, who were there first. So the tension between the British and the Boers, we will come back to in a second. Uh, One of his first pieces, actually, Tom, is about going to Zululand. So the British are poised to basically annex Zululand. In 1876, he goes and he sees a war dance, and he writes about it, one of his first articles. He says, um, it was like coming face to face with great primeval nature, not nature as we civilized people know her, smiling in cornfields, waving in well-ordered woods, but nature as she was on the morrow of the creation. That tells you something about the British attitude to Africa and Haggard's attitude to Africa. The idea that it's primeval, that it's unspoiled by modernity, that somehow it's truer 
cleaner, more authentic, but also it's more, it's more, I hate to use the word. This is the word Haggard would have used. He would have said it was more savage. He would, he would, but, but, but equally this sense of a kind of pristine warrior potency that perhaps has been diminished in Britain. Yes. But among the Zulus is, is, you know, it can stretch right the way back to, as he says there, the the beginning of time. And um, there's this kind of amazing detail when he, so the Britain and Zulu go to war, um, British army gets wiped out at Isandwana. Then there's a heroic defense by British soldiers um, at Rourke's Drift, which is the subject of the film Zulu. And Ryder Haggard actually goes and he he visits the battlefield of Isandwana after the, after the battle. And he reported seeing crushed cartridge cases and a broken cricket stump and ball. Oh, crikey. And there's maybe something there of that sense that you get with Kipling, who who kind of despised muddy, you know, muddy doves and flanneled fools, that the British are in some way unserious as warriors yeah. compared to the Zulus, that the British win because they've got the Gatling gun and the Zulus have not, Yes, um, to paraphrase. I think that's right, Tom, because I think the interesting thing about Haggard, we'll come to this, is that he's one of these people who loves the kind of romance of Africa, of exploration, adventure, but the formal empire, I think he always views as a bit of a disappointment, as kind of too bureaucratic, mm. pusillanimous. There, there's a brilliant example of this. So... As we said, at this point in the um, late 1870s, the British are are pushing sort of north and, and absorbing territory. One of the places they absorb, they eventually end up annexing not just Zululand after the Zulu War, but one of the Boer Republics, the Transvaal. And in 1877, Haggard is actually, as a sort of dog's body, he is part of the party that go from Natal to the north, to the Transvaal, to Pretoria, that he reads out because the, the the important the official who's going to do it loses his voice. So Haggard, the junior person, is given the proclamation of annexation to read out in Pretoria, and he hoists the Union flag. And this is a very proud moment for him. You know, he thinks this is you know our empire is a civilizing mission, all of this stuff. This is great. But three years later, the Boers rebel. There's a revolt in the Transvaal. There's been a change of government in Britain. So Disraeli, who was all for imperialism, has given way to Gladstone, who's much more ambivalent about it. Um, the British suffer a defeat at Majuba Hill. I mean, these are quite small forces. Yeah. But they suffer a defeat. And uh, meanwhile, Haggard, Haggard has become a, an ostrich farmer, hasn't he? An ostrich farmer. Yes, exactly. And he, and he hears the sound of the fighting from his farm. He does. He does indeed. Exactly right. Um, so he's settled down. He's married by this point. He's got this ostrich farm, which is near the border between the Transvaal and the Tull. Um, the British are defeated. Gladstone doesn't want to pour in a load of money and men and all that stuff. He just says, fine, let the Boers have their independence, you know, Sodom. At that point, Haggard, so to show how personal this is for him, the peace terms are actually negotiated at his farmhouse, which is called Hilldrop. And Haggard writes himself later, it was a strange fate which decreed that the retrocession of the Transvaal, over which I had myself hoisted the British flag, should be practically accomplished beneath my roof. Dominic, do you think that Ryder Haggard is the only famous British novelist to have kept an ostrich farm? I guess he must be. 
I can't imagine Jane Austen keeping ostriches. Or I thought you were asking me that because you knew that Henry James or Graham Greene. <laughs> no, I don't. It's a genuine question. I simply cannot imagine. <laughs> Iris Murdoch had, had, had once. Yeah, no. no, I can't imagine anyone else keeping ostriches. Anyway, but he comes back then, doesn't he, to Britain? This is the funny thing. This is the end of Ryder Haggard in Africa, Tom, pretty much. Mm. He's been there for five years. He comes back and he says, this is a great betrayal by Gladstone and the Liberals. He's like these people who are slagging off Gladstone because they see him as a abandoning General Gordon. Anyway, this is the end of Ryder Haggard in Africa. He now comes back and he decides he's going to be a lawyer. So he goes, he's called to the bar, he's a barrister. He tries his hand at writing novels and he writes two that are not a success. pretty useless. Yeah, not successful. Don't trouble the scorer. And then an amazing story. He is on the train one day going to London with his brother, one of his multiple much more successful and impressive siblings. And they're talking about a new book which has been a tremendous hit and the first of a genre, first of a new genre. That book is Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, which was published in 1883. Treasure Island was an enormous hit and it appealed to an entirely new readership. So these are people who are newly literate because of the Education Act of 1870, which has expanded schooling in Britain. These are people who probably a generation or two earlier would would never have been able to read and write, but they are, you know, books are cheaper. There are new newspapers. They love Treasure Island. They can't get enough of this daring do and blood and thunder and all this stuff. And the whole thing about Treasure Island is that, again, that it's about pirates, Spanish main. It's a world that is somehow more glamorous and more dangerous. Exactly. Than England. It's pure escapism rooted in a sort of kind of fantastical version of history, I suppose. And opens with a map. And opens with a map. So there's a degree of a quest about it. You know, people in the 1880s love this kind of stuff. Anyway, Ryder Haggard says to his brother, well, I think I could, uh, I think it's, I don't think it's that great. I think I could do better than that. And his brother said to him, supposedly, there are different, two different stories. One, his brother says, I'll bet you, I think, a bob or something. And another is, he, he says, I'll bet you five shillings, whatever. He says, I bet you can't do it as, good, as well as Robert Louis Stevenson. Haggard says, fine, I'll do it. It takes him extraordinarily six weeks. I think you can sometimes detect traces of that in the writing, Tom, do you think? But, but authors are always saying that. Well, they know they, I, that's, that's true. I, I say that about writing the, my uh, vampire book. Did it take you six weeks? I always say it took me six weeks. And six I look years. Back and, I, and I realize actually it didn't. It took me slightly longer than that. I think right. it's kind of shorthand for it. He wrote it very fast. He wrote it very fast. And actually when he first, so he writes King Solomon's Mines, his own quest story set in the in a version of the Africa in which he had spent five years. Right. Because that's the key thing, isn't it? That actually, I mean, he's, he's saying that, um, you know, there are unknown reaches, but that's not true. I mean, there aren't, he knows full well that there aren't these huge deserts and these mysterious mountains right. and any possibility of a kind of lost paradisal kingdom, um, which is Kukuana land, isn't it? That when they arrive there, it's kind of, it's, it's more beautiful. It's more intense. Everything is, is kind of more glamorous and exciting. The warriors are braver. The women are more beautiful. Yeah. Um, and it's a fantastical land, but he knows full well that that doesn't exist. Uh, he does, Tom, but there are still blank spaces on the map. Kind of. At the time that he's... Well, we should come back to Explorers. We'll come back to Explorers. <laughs> the thing that really puts publishers off, actually, is not the fantasy, it's the violence. So there's a lot of violence. Um, there's a particular a scene which said that there's a brilliant um, writer called Catherine Rundell. Yes, uh, the biographer of Dunn. Of John Dunn, and also a prize-winning children's author. And she wrote a wonderful essay about Ryder Haggard in the London Review of Books a couple of years ago. And she points out that, the, she says, the highlight for most children when they read it is a bit when a young, a young boy, a Zulu boy, 
is is literally torn apart by an elephant. And she points out that most children love this, uh, which anyone who's written for children knows that this is almost yes. certainly true. Um, <laughs> yes. But the publishers were appalled by this. So one publisher said, never has it been our fate to wade through such a farrago of obscene witlessness. Nothing is more likely in the hands of the young to do so much injury as this recklessly immoral book. So lots of them turn it down, but Castle um, agreed to publish it. They bring it out in autumn of 1885. They have billboards around London that describe it as the most amazing book ever written. That's, I mean, you'd love that, wouldn't you? As a- I would, of course, as an author. And it's a massive, massive hit. And it's a hit not least because this is the year of the Berlin Conference, when all the European colonial powers are meeting to divide Africa between themselves. The onset of the scramble for Africa. Exactly. It gets brilliant reviews, by and large. I mean, some people don't like it, but the Athenaeum, a journal, said the fighting scenes were hardly to be beaten outside Homer and the great Duma. Right, but the echoes of Homer again, the sense of... uh primal warrior virtue and prowess at the beginning of time. Exactly. Um, still still to be found in the heart of Africa. Now, funnily enough, Robert Louis Stevenson, who Haggard had set out to beat, he actually writes to Haggard and he says, you know, well done, tremendous book, your fine, weird imagination. But he also says to Haggard, just be careful with your prose, you should slow down a bit. And um, <laughs> Which Haggard presumably found very condescending. And Haggard completely ignored because in the next few months, he pours out more books. So he writes a, a sequel called Alan Quartermain and another book, which you'll come to a little bit later, called She, which is another absolutely foundational text in our kind of popular imagination. And that sets him off. I mean, just to finish with Haggard, he becomes a full-time writer. He makes lots of money. He becomes a kind of um, a country landowner. Uh, he tries to become a Tory politician. So he stands in, in Norfolk in 1895, but he loses. That's quite a feat, isn't it? To lose as a would-be Tory MP in Norfolk. Well, I, well, I think in those days, Haggard claimed that he said the area could not have been more unfriendly right. to, the, to the unionist cause. I think possibly because of food. Okay. Um, cheap food prices meant that for agricultural labourers in, in East Anglia, these were tough times in the 1890s. Okay. So, well, let's not get into free trade or anything like that. Let's, yes. let's stick to... But he becomes a famous kind of Africanist. So he's the head of all kinds of commissions and panels, even though, as we said, he's actually only spent five years. Well, he, and- he, writes, um, he writes a whole... The Zulu trilogy as well, doesn't yeah. he, towards the end of his life, featuring... Um, and this is Alan Quatermain again, featuring Zikali, the dwarf wizard known as <laughs> the thing that should never have been born... <laughs> <laughs> which is i haven't read that a tremendous one, so. a tremendous name <laughs> oh, that's a great imagine name. if you were called that <laughs> that is a truly great name and then his trajectory is almost slightly predictable so by the 1910s and 1920s he spends all his time going on about radicals and bolsheviks and and sort of international socialism and stuff you can imagine the kind of stuff he would have been putting had he had the internet oh yeah absolutely um yes he would have been cancelled i think it's fair to say tom yeah um Although not everybody had read King Solomon's Minds or She, it's a bit like Star Wars or James Bond today or Spider-Man, dare I say, Tom. Never heard of it. Almost every sort of thinking, reading person in the English-speaking world would have been aware of those books, of the Alan Quatermain character, and of the cliches and the kind of the tropes that... Um, yeah, Conan Doyle's Lost World, the idea of Tarzan, or all that kind of stuff, the, the people going from the Imperial Metropole to distant reaches yeah. and discovering extraordinary treasures. And Dominic, go, I mean, going back to the book, one thing that we haven't explained is the title. So w- right. what are King Solomon's minds doing 
yeah in south africa i mean it's quite a long way from uh, from jerusalem yeah uh, and that is also a kind of enduring part so you mentioned in indiana jones the idea that um there are lost civilizations uh waiting to be discovered and that um and this is quite kind of atlantis we talked about this in the the atlantis thing the idea that if there are ruins and ancient civilizations to be found in africa the assumption is that they are not actually african in origin yeah that it is outsiders who have brought them that in some way they've either brought kind of mysterious powers or they've brought mysterious technology or ways of of say constructing mines and in this case the, the argument is that solomon and um the phoenicians together are working to build the temple and they go to a place called ophir or ophet and basically in king solomon's minds ophir is identified with kukuana land but in the bible tom doesn't it say Solomon received tribute of gold, peacocks, cedar wood stuff. Yeah, of general stuff from this place that has never been pinned down. Yeah. And people were always, all through the medieval period, people were fascinated by the idea that there was some lost kingdom out there, yes. which was the real Ophir or Ophet. And this place must be incredibly rich. And that sort of became conflated with the other idea, massively popular in medieval period, that there was a lost Christian king out there called Prester John, yeah, called Prester John, which was clearly based on some garbled, yeah, memory of of of, of Abyssinia, of Ethiopia. But there's also one other kind of Solomonic element, which is the Queen of Sheba. Yes, and basically everyone knew where Sheba was. It was it's southern Arabia. But increasingly in the Middle Ages, people don't want to be satisfied with that, and they start thinking, well, where else could it be? And because Africa to Europeans is unknown it's unmapped people start thinking that that in some way prester john and ophir and sheba are somehow kind of blended and are to be found in the depths of um the depths of africa so i mean this goes right the way back to the 16th century when the, the portuguese are starting to really you know go up river and they're basically the only europeans to do it so in 1552 there was this guy called jao de barros who wrote a whole book in which he he conflates Prester John and the Queen of Sheba and says that there is a ruined city in the middle of Africa. And this proves to be an incredibly potent idea. And over the centuries that follow, people keep looking for it. Yeah. And then the for, for Ryder Haggard, the key thing is that in 1871, an explorer called Karl Mauch, is it? <laughs> Karl Mauch? I think it's Karl Mauch, isn't it? <laughs> but Karl Mauch, he discovers a spectacular ruined city. But that's the thing, Tom. I mean, people have been talking about, is there a ruined city in the middle of Africa, a medieval city for hundreds of years? And there is. And, there is. And this is um, Great Zimbabwe, which dates back mm. to the ninth century. And as you said, Karl Mauck finds it. Um, I think it had been found by, there's another German guy who'd found it a few years earlier, but he takes Karl Mauck and Mauck popularizes it, doesn't he? Yeah. And so this is happening um, a, a decade or so before Ryder Haggard starts work on King Solomon's Mines. And can I read you what Karl Mauck said about what he found there? Do. Okay. So he he's writing here the tones of a sober and measured archaeologist. <laughs> it can be taken as a fact that the wood which we obtained from Great Zimbabwe actually is cedar wood. And from this, that it cannot come from anywhere else but from the Lebanon. Furthermore, only the Phoenicians could have brought it here. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's the level of evidence. I mean, people now read this and they say, my gosh, this is pure imperialism. Um, European observers just could not get their heads around the idea that people in what is now Zimbabwe could have built a medieval city. 
because they didn't think Africans were capable of it. So they had to invent all these sort of ideas that mm. people had traveled ridiculously long distances and established Phoenician colonies in South Africa or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly racist. It's clearly founded on the idea that Africans can't produce their own civilization. Yeah. But it, but it is also, I think, expressive of a desire to join this beautiful, to Europeans, exotic land of adventure to reference points that they will understand. Yeah. And so that's basically, in King Solomon's minds, um, the Homeric. So that's, the, you know, there's a kind of great war is fought in Kukuana land, and it's described in very overtly Homeric terms. The Viking. Yeah. So one of the heroes in um, in King Solomon's minds, like Haggard himself, is a Viking descent. Sir Henry. He's often described, isn't he, as a, with his big hair and his beard and his enormous muscles. Haggard absolutely has enormous physical enthusiasm, shall we say. For... Well, he absolutely does. And so this, this figure, what's he called? Sir Henry Curtis? Sir Henry Curtis, yeah. Sir Henry Curtis joins up with um, the uh, the Zulu guy who we described at the beginning, who has been accompanying them as a, as a servant. But when they arrive there, turns out to be the rightful king of Kokoana land, Ignosi. He's Aragorn, basically, isn't he, Tom? He is Aragorn. Um, and um, he and uh, Sir Henry both dress up in the same kind of war gear. And Ryder Haggard is very, very keen on it. The dress was no doubt a savage one, but I am bound to say I never saw a finer sight than Sir Henry Curtis presented in this guise. It showed off his magnificent physique to the greatest advantage. And when Ignosi arrived presently arrayed in similar costume, I thought to myself that I never before saw two such splendid men. <laughs> and I think the thing there is is the idea that Ignosi is part of a, a, a culture in Ryder Haggard's view that is still on a level with Vikings and with uh, yeah. Homeric Greeks. Uh, and Sir Henry Curtis, by going there, has been able to reclaim his own status as someone equivalent in a way that he would never have done had he stayed um, in his ancestral estate back in England. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. He has this idea that by which I think is is enormously potent. And actually, you can see in all kinds of popular culture today, this idea that by going to Africa, you will somehow turn the clock back, cast off the degeneracy of modern life yeah. and become more truly authentic. But also going back to Haggard and Great Zimbabwe, just before we go to the break, Haggard wrote a preface to a history of Great Zimbabwe of this site. He He absolutely believed that it was Phoenician. I mean, a, a, what would strike us as just an absolutely ludicrous, bonkers idea. Sort of Netflix-worthy, Tom, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> and uh, Haggard said, um, mm -hmm. what was the condition of this empire and what the measure of the effective dignity of its emperor points rather difficult to determine? I mean, which is, which is putting, it, putting it mildly. But then he says, it is legitimate to hope. It seems probable even that in centuries to come, a town will once more nestle beneath these grey and ancient ruins, trading in gold, as did that of the Phoenicians, but peopled by men of the Anglo-Saxon race. Well, and in fact, that kind of does happen, because in 1890, the region that, um, that Great Zimbabwe is standing in, a place called Mashona Land, is occupied by um, Cecil Rhodes' British South Africa company. And Rhodes becomes absolutely obsessed with the idea that, that uh, Zimbabwe was Phoenician. And he sets up a company, which is brilliantly called Rhodesia Ancient Ruins Limited, which claimed the exclusive oh, tourist rights to it. Yeah, um, And of course, Rhodesia, Mashona land gets given Rhodes's name and Rhodesia will become a kind of white settler country. So Exactly. So in, in some ways, Haggard got what he wanted, because of course, gold was one of the things that 
was driving the British deeper and deeper um, into Africa. Listen, we should take a break, Tom. There's so much to just, I mean, it's such a fascinating subject. There's so much to unpack. And we shall return after the break with talk of explorers, big game hunters. But also for any uh, female listeners thinking this is all a bit masculine, we yeah. will also be discussing Ryder Haggard's attitude to the ladies. Exactly. <laughs> like We're like Mitt Romney. We've got binders full of women and we'll be back <laughs> after the break. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. For there, not more than 40 or 50 miles from us, glittering like silver in the early rays of the morning sun, were Sheba's breasts. And stretching away for hundreds of miles on each side of them was the great Solomon Berg. Now that I, sitting here, attempt to describe the extraordinary grandeur and beauty of that sight, language seems to fail me. I am impotent, even before its memory. There, straight before us, were two enormous mountains the like of which are not, I believe, to be seen in Africa, if indeed there are any other such in the world, measuring each at least 15,000 feet in height, standing not more than a dozen miles apart, connected by a precipitous cliff of rock, and towering up in awful white solemnity straight into the sky. These mountains standing thus, like the, like the pillars of a gigantic gateway, are shaped exactly like a woman's breasts. Their bases swelled gently up from the plain, looking at that distance perfectly round and smooth, and on the top of each was a vast round hillock covered with snow, exactly corresponding to the nipple on the female breast. So, Dominic, deep waters. <laughs> um, I mean, frankly, one of the weirdest passages in the whole of Victorian literature. Um, and the weird thing is that... Um, Ryder Haggard makes a boast, doesn't he, of there being no petticoats 
in yeah. King Solomon's minds. And he says the, the kind of the opening introduction that it is dedicated to all the big and little boys who read it. Yes. And yet actually a kind of nervousness about the female is, is present throughout the book. <laughs> there are some very deep waters here, Tom. Um, right. So there are a couple of things here. So one is that Haggard is like so many imperial writers. He is absolutely obsessed with the idea of masculine brotherhood, isn't he? Yes. And, and manliness. So he believes that you'll become more manly by going to Africa. But he, it's also incredibly important that your manliness is, is connected to other men. So the idea of the fellowship, the brotherhood, which obviously Tolkien then copied, critics describe it as homosocial, don't they? Um, rather than homoerotic. But the way he talks about Sir Henry with his rippling muscles and all this yeah. sort of stuff, there is an awful lot going on there. And that is actually very common among not just imperial writers, but all these imperial characters, General Gordon, yeah. Kitchener, yeah. Lord Milner, all of these people. It was all about kind of strapping young men, you know, stripping off together and, and stuff. The, the corollary of that is a certain nervousness about uh, about women. Definitely. So, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think you'd have to be Freud to recognize that in a way the whole journey is is a kind of trip a- across africa represented as a female body so yeah. the breasts i mean literally she the queen of sheba's breasts and then they go into this beautiful kind of paradisal land and then they go deep underground into the tunnels and, and they get yeah. trapped there Yes, they can't get out. I know. There's a lot going, there's a lot going on there, Tom. and they, and they get trapped there by the most memorable character in the whole book, yeah. who is this witch called Gagool, who is, I mean, fabulously ancient. And when I say fabulous, I mean literally so, because I, I mentioned how they have the whole thing, the stunt with the eclipse and things. Now, this is impresses everybody with their ability to to kind of command deep magic. But but Gagool is not impressed because she has already seen this happen, yeah. which implies that she is literally centuries old. Catherine Rondell in her essay in the um, the LRB has, this, I mean, says that Ryder Haggard is obviously obsessed with monkeys because she is described as a monkey and people who are so old that they've basically become like monkeys are a feature throughout Ryder Haggard's fiction. That's right. So Gagool, by the way, we mentioned Tolkien. I think Gagool is, I mean, Gagool is very Gollum-like. She kind of capers around like a monkey. Gollum's often described as a monkey. She's wizened and kind of wrinkled. And it's as though by living so long, she has... She's become stretched. She has. She's become stretched and she's kind of degenerated into something that's not entirely human. And now, obviously, there are all kinds of things going on here. So she's a version of... She's a woman. She's also obviously... You know, she's black. She's African. And there's all kinds of weird stuff going on in Haggard's mind. There is another woman called Fulata. She's a kind of love interest. So she has to die. She, she's killed. Yeah, she's very pretty and she dies. And, and, and Alan Quartermain. Now, she's become obsessed with one of his traveling companions who is uh, was Captain Good. Who spends the whole time walking around without trousers on. <laughs> she's obsessed. All the, all the characters are obsessed with his legs. And, and it's clear that she and Good are, are a couple. Or going to become a couple. And so when she dies, Alan Quartermain says, feel bound to say that I consider her removal a fortunate occurrence, since otherwise complications would have been sure to ensue. In other words, you can't shack up with an African woman. Right. But and the, but the complications in Haggard's mind are not just social, they're biological, right? Because this is an age when racism is scientifically based, increasingly. Yes, um, absolutely. And there's quite a lot of that in Ryder Haggard's novels. So the masculine brotherhood and the idea of becoming, you know, more truly yourself when you're out with your friends, your male friends in Africa, hunting elephants and having adventures, that goes hand in hand with this idea that back home in the cities, 
surrounded by all the trappings of kind of urban industrial modernity, the race is becoming degenerate. That the white race, this is the word terminology Haggard would have used, is losing its kind of vital sap and all of this stuff. And this yeah. fear of degener of racial degeneracy runs right through, I mean, it's not just Haggard, but so much of the kind of culture of the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s. So every British defeat, but that defeat against the Zulus, the defeat in the First Boer War, and then later on, much more so in the Second Boer War, they're all explained by the fact that people say, well, what do you expect? All these people work in yeah. factories and they live in the cities. They don't hunt elephants. Yeah. They become racially degenerate. Uh, yeah. And this is now the character who epitomizes this, the woman character, is the the person from Haggard's other big bestseller. And that is she. And that's another quest. So we don't have time to kind of go into all the details of that. But basically, the lead character and she is like a combination of Gagool and Fulata. And she's basically. So she's very beautiful, but thousands of years old because she's maintained the secret of eternal youth but is an incredible witch yes so she's aisha i mean she's one of the dominating female characters in i would say in all popular fiction she gets a name that was given to um Ryder haggard's rag doll from his childhood she who must be obeyed and which in the rumpole books uh rumpole <laughs> that's right that's right calls his wife she who must be obeyed so um so if you read she i mean she is an intoxicating book it's very i mean you, it's hard not to read it with your kind of freudian hat on isn't it tom Catherine Rundell had something very funny to say about Aisha, though, because she subjects the characters who've gone on this quest to colossally long monologues. <laughs> she says, she rants like Nigel Farage and has only one point to make. Men are powerless in the face of beautiful women, for women desire not men but power. The greatest woman to have ever lived is a disappointment, a heckling sex witch. <laughs> That's basically what um, what happens to uh, to the characters. They just are forced to listen to Aisha for all this time. But then at the end, she then there's more sort of this weird kind of degeneracy stuff because she bathes in the in this sort of the fountain of life and she shrivels in the flames and literally turns into a kind of like a little wrinkled monkey before she dies. So this again, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on there with the kind of the undercurrents of of the imperial mentality, I suppose you would say. Well, yeah, because um, Vs. <laughs> Bridget writing about um she said that um wrote mr e.m forster once spoke of the novelist sending down a bucket into the unconscious the author of she installed a suction pump yeah <laughs> I mean, it's so it's it's very very right but she I, I mean she is the primary text of the lost world genre in brian aldis's history of science fiction is kind of definitive canonical history of science fiction he he says she creates this idea of the empress the priestess the sorceress that is at the heart of so many scientific romances. So, so, you know, you go to an alien planet and it's ruled by this terrifying, sexy, but deeply evil woman. I mean, that is pure Ryder Haggard. I mean, going even deeper into the subconscious, is, is there a sense in which Ryder Haggard is expressing something in the fact that um, she is published in 1887, which is the year of Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee? Yeah. And Aisha is a, a reclusive white queen ruling over Africans, and so is Queen Victoria. Yeah. And is there some sense? I mean, is there any? Well, lots of critics say this. So lots of kind of post-colonial critics and whatnot are very interested in this, and they say it's his own anxieties or Britain's anxieties about its own empire, about its legitimacy. What, what do you think? Well, Woke -tosh? You, know, you, know, <laughs> you know I can be a bit sceptical, so there's part of me that says, yeah, it's probably a coincidence. I don't think so, because I think I think the whole idea of white queens right. is, is so associated with Victoria. 
and even if he's not consciously doing it to, yeah. to, to, to make this villain the white queen well she actually says aisha says i'm going to go back to britain with you topple your queen who's obviously useless and become queen myself so you know maybe there is stuff going on there there are a couple of other themes i think that we should talk about so one is obviously these are books of an age of exploration so burton and speak richard burton and john hanning speak a couple of decades earlier had gone on this amazing these amazing expeditions to discover the african great lakes you know um in the in the heart of Africa. Henry Morton Stanley most famously had found Livingston in 1872 and his book on Livingston had been a massive massive hit. And this idea of this fascination with maps that you get both in in she and in King Solomon's minds. I mean that's absolutely of the age. So people love the idea of that what Joseph Conrad talks about later on in the Heart of Darkness. I mean it's two ideas in once. One is that Africa is the heart of darkness, that by going deeper into Africa, you penetrate into this sort of world of primeval wickedness. I mean, that's obviously very common in imperial mentality of the 19th century. Yeah, so stopping slavery and, and witchcraft. Right. But also the, the idea of blank spaces. There are the few blank spaces left, and who knows what's there? But again, there is this tension. So if Africa is a land where the savagery is expressed through slavery and witchcraft. At the same time, it is a land where we talked before, where lost wisdom may be found, a kind of yeah. primal freshness that warriors are braver, bolder, stronger. I mean, so there's a kind of tension there, isn't there, that is... I suppose if you're writing novels, it results in you not just writing kind of racist propaganda. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there clearly is enthusiasm for the British Empire in Ryder Haggard's books, and there is definitely quite a deep strain of racism there. But it's not just racist. It's not just imperial. It kind of reaps narrative fruit from those tensions. It does, because as you said, he regards the character of Ignosi in King Solomon's Minds, let's say, as, as noble, as impressive. And actually, at the end of the book, I mean, spoiler alert, Ignosi surprise surprise regains his kingdom but he explicitly says to the to the heroes no white men other than you may ever come into my kingdom you know i know all you want is diamonds and gold we, we won't have you we won't have missionaries we won't have people selling rum you know all of this sort of stuff that shows that haggard is aware of the costs of empire and of what an african king would say about it again spoiler alert as you said there are other missions so ignosi gets his kingdom so henry curtis does find his brother but actually the, the the quest for king solomon's minds turns out to be a bit of a dud because essentially many of the characters are not interested in the diamonds no alan quatermain is i mean he scoops up loads of diamonds and become ends up very rich and is made unhappy by it goes back to england builds it has has an estate and is left kind of restless and and, and unhappy but Sir Henry Curtis doesn't take any any diamonds at all. And throughout the book, the obsession of Europeans with diamonds and gold is relentlessly criticised, really. It is. It, I mean, the fascinating thing about Haggard, and as such of so many of these imperial writers, Kipling, I think, is very similar, is that he's too good a writer to be just a racist propagandist. To be jingoistic, yeah. But when he's not writing novels, he's incredibly jingoistic. Yeah. He writes again and again, kind of letters to the Times and things saying, so in 1913, he says, the future of Africa will not be a conflict between the Britons and the Boers, but the inevitable, though let us hope, far off struggle for practical supremacy between the white blood and the black. And he's always saying this stuff. 1924, in his, in his diary, the great ultimate war, as I've always held, will be that between the white and colored races. And that history will ultimately be the story of the bloody conflict 
between implacably opposed races. But I suppose the tension there is that he's he's not taking for granted who would win a war between the black and the white races, because his anxiety would be that the white race is degenerate and that the black race as a disandwana is braver, stronger, kind of less corrupted. Exactly that. He talks again and again in his, and, and other writers do as well, um, about how life is struggle. He's a, he's a Darwin. He's a social Darwinist, a classic social Darwinist. So he gives this these words to Aisha and she. In this world, none but the strongest can endure. Those who are weak must perish. The earth is to the strong and the fruits thereof. Um, for every tree that grows, a score shall wither that the strong may take their share. I mean, that's, you know, it's like something from um, Nuremberg in the 1920s. But this is absolutely what people are saying, by the way, at the time. It's not unusual. He's obsessed with the idea that in Britain, people are, they've lost their kind of manliness. And, and actually, the heroes that he likes are not generally traditional imperial figures. They are big game hunters, explore. I mean, there's this, he's absolutely of that generation that fantasize about these kind of maverick, virile, sort of eccentric characters. So there are two models for Alan Quartermain. So Quartermain says at the beginning of the King Solomon's Mines, I've been trading, hunting, fighting, or mining all my life, which is very kind of, it's very Wilbur Smith. But the the real life inspirations for Quartermain, there are two of them. One is a guy called Frederick Sellis, who was a explorer and big game hunter in the from the 1870s onwards. He is an amazing character, actually. He'd never be big enough, I think, for the rest of his history on his own. But when he was 19, Frederick Sellis in 1870, I read, and I quote, he knocked unconscious a Prussian game warden who tackled him while he was stealing buzzard eggs for his collection. <laughs> right. And he had to leave the country at once to avoid imprisonment. So he left Prussia. He went off to um, Africa. He was British. He went off to Africa, ended up working for Cecil Rhodes. He shot, he shot 78 elephants in three years. The Natural History Museum to this day, Tom, has 524 animals shot by Frederick Sellis, including 19 lions. Wow. And he died at the age of 65 fighting the Germans in the First World War in Tanganyika. So he's one inspiration for Alan Quartermain. And the other is a guy called Joseph Thompson, who was a Scottish geologist and explorer. Here's a, a nice telling link. He studied under Thomas Huxley, Darwin's bulldog. Ah, oh, yes, right. And he went off to Kenya. He was gored by a buffalo while trying to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Of course he was. Then he works for Cecil Rhodes again, getting concessions and treaties in Rhodesia. And actually, Haggard was accused of plagiarizing his book about travels with the Maasai. Right. So all of this stuff is a sort of network of imperial connections and neuroses and anxieties. and All this thing about uh, people hunting, people simultaneously admiring and fearing native peoples whom they are displacing and ripping off the sense of a, a frontier that is slowly closing. Of course, what it reminds you of is the Wild West in America yeah. and, the, and the role that that has played in the, the American cultural imagination. And there's a sense in which basically Africa is, is playing that role for British fiction writers. I think I hadn't thought of that, but I think that's absolutely right. Now you mention it. It is, isn't it? The idea of hunting, the idea of the Indians in America, the Native Americans as sort of there to be feared, but also respected as... Yeah. So obviously the legacy of the Wild West continues right the way into the future. I mean, every, everybody is familiar with that. I guess it's more occluded, but the influence of King Solomon's Mines and that tradition, I mean, that is also absolutely a part of, I mean, it remains a part of popular culture to this day, really, would you say? I think it absolutely is. So when Haggard died in the 1920s, the Edinburgh Review um, 
I found this wonderful quote, haggard South African romances filled many a young fellow with longing to go into the wide spaces of those lands and see their marvels for himself. And they have thus aided far more than we can ever know in bringing British settlers and influence into the new country. They have helped to accomplish the dreams and aims of Cecil Rhodes. So there's two things, I think. One is that Obviously, Haggard is one of the two or three great writers of empire, like Kipling, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But also, I think the themes that you've just mentioned, you know, the things that are similar to the Wild West, but also the idea of being stuck underground, archaeological discoveries, lost worlds, layers upon layers of history that kind of adventurers are uncovering, um, terrifying sorceresses, all these kinds of things. I mean, they're there all the way through, aren't they? Partly, I suppose, because... At the end of Haggard's life, his works were being ad adapted for the screen in the first kind of Hollywood film, adventure films and talkies and so on. So all these people, even if they'd never read, you know, King Solomon's Minds or She, all these people who end up working in the cinema or in TV or, you know, all these things, they are intimately familiar with the kind of the themes of, of Haggard's novels. And that's why I think you see them again and again in popular culture running all the way through you know, into the, I suppose, into even after the British involvement in Africa has completely changed, which obviously it does after World War Two, Right, because it's there in Indiana Jones and you mentioned computer games. Yeah. And so I think that in recent decades, there have been two kind of massive reworkings of King Solomon's Minds that have had global impact. The first is um, a kind of very British perspective. It's that of Wilbur Smith, who's a massive selling novelist, probably the um, the biggest selling, I think, African novelist of all time. I think he sold you know, millions and millions. And so he's from Rhodesia. Right. So grew up in Africa, yeah. lived in Africa all his life. And Rhodesia is the place where Zimbabwe, the great ruins of Zimbabwe were. And of course, in due course, uh, when white rule in Rhodesia gets toppled, um, comes to be called Zimbabwe. And great Zimbabwe, which is kind of one of the inspirations for King Solomon's Minds. I'm betraying here my intimate knowledge of, of the young Wilbur Smith, because in 1941, when the future best-selling writer was eight, I think, he went on this sort of nighttime expedition with his dad to go and see the ruins of Great Zimbabwe. And they obviously stuck in his mind, because decades later, he wrote all these massively best-selling books in which kind of African history and lost cities and things like that all play a part, don't they? Yes, and they're novels that are haunted by regret for the collapse of uh, the British Empire. So, right. you know, in that sense, quite an unfashionable perspective, I think it would be fair to say. Yeah. Um, and maybe the um, the success of his novels says something about how people in Britain and in the broader British Commonwealth feel about that legacy. Who, who can say? Well, I think they appeal to a particular kind of reader, probably sort of um, a reader who doesn't mind a bit of kind of pungent prose, Tom. <laughs> Very possibly. There's certainly a lot more sex in Wilbur Smith than there is in uh, Ryder Haggard. But the other, I think reworking more recent reworking of the themes and traditions of king solomon's minds is perhaps for, for listeners a slightly more unexpected one because it's one that comes from a kind of american perspective on africa and that's black panther right interesting so black panther is part of the marvel franchise yeah part of the mcu tom mcu uh whatever that is yeah i don't know what that means but i'm sure it is it's the marvel cinematic universe Right. So that's what it is. As Spider-Man, you should know all about this. So Black Panther is from a lost city in Africa. Yeah. And just as Ryder Haggard says that um, 
you know, these great works of civilization derived from Phoenicians. So in Black Panther, the kind of almost supernatural power that the people of this, what is it? Wakanda. Wakanda. Yes. You mispronounced it in an earlier episode of The Rest of History and got a lot of, a lot of grief from the listeners. Yes, I did. So every time I, I say the name, I feel nervous. But it derives from um, some weird metal that's landed and somebody swallowed this metal and, and kind of obtained superpower. Vibranium, I believe it is. Vibranium. Yeah. Okay. So what the Phoenicians are to King Solomon's Mines, Vibranium is to Black Panther, i.e., something that explains how a civilization has arised in the middle of Africa. And so therefore, I would say, a little bit dubious, um, why should it need kind of outside cosmic intervention? You have an ancient civilization, you have a lost city that is uh, in Black Panther kind of literally veiled by a kind of high-tech screen, uh, a paradisal land. You have all the kind of stuff that you get in King Solomon's mind. So you have this sense that people there, the warriors and their female as well as male in Black Panther yeah. are stronger, harder, tougher, cooler than uh, you'd get in um, in the West. They even have kind of combat between rival contenders, which is very much a theme of King Solomon's Mines. Yeah. And so I think that that even though, obviously, Black Panther, you know, the very name is reflective of the racial politics of America from the 60s onwards. I mean, it, it does seem to me <laughs> indubitably to be informed by that very unexpected legacy of King Solomon's Mines. And to find it there is a lot more unexpected, I think, than to find it, say, in the novels of Wilbur Smith. Doesn't that bear out the point, though, that we've talked about sometimes that the pop culture of, of let's say, 1870 to 1930 establishes the template for so many of the things that we take for granted today? I mean, anybody who plays a video game will probably have played some iteration of She or King Solomon's Mines, just as, you know, I mean, it, it comes from the same era that people are writing detective fiction, spy novels, mm. all of these things. It's actually extraordinary to think how many of popular cultural kind of themes and devices that we're all familiar with, that they date from those years, either side of the turn of the 20th century and from actually British imperial pop culture. Almost like it's a league of extraordinary gentlemen. Oh, that's very good, Tom. That's very good. Mm. I see what you did there. You see that? I mean, you don't even know what that is. I know because the producer told you about it yesterday. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but Alan, Alan Quartermain is one of those. So that's a comic book in which Alan Moore takes all these heroes from the late 19th century and Mina Harker from Dracula and so on and imagines them, you know, as, as forming a kind of Avengers style combo. And Alan Quartermain is the chief figure. Well, there you go. So there you go. His legacy lives on. And actually, Tom, we've been talking so long, and I'm with such gusto about Wilbur Smith and all these random things that the producer has actually changed in the course of the podcast. So <laughs> one producer has gone, Theo has gone home and been replaced by Alex. Or it's the magical power of she. It could well be. Well, let's not delve deeper into those very Freudian depths, Tom, of uh, the powers <laughs> of she. So. That's H. Ryder Haggard. We will be returning. What will we be returning with, Tom? Uh, with uh, Cromwell's Cromwell's uh, Britain and indeed Ireland. Cromwell's Britain. Would you think Cromwell would have loved all this stuff? Mm, um, I think a little bit of him. I think he'd have found it a touch ungodly. Yeah, it's a bit ungodly. Yeah, But there's the bit of him that would have probably been well up for. I think he'd have enjoyed an adventure, didn't he? This is madness. I mean... Would Oliver Cromwell have enjoyed the novels of <laughs> King Solomon's <laughs> yeah. Mind? Oh, these are the questions that we dare to ask. <laughs> that no other podcast will bring you. Right. <laughs> and on that note, we will say thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.